Welcome to our weekly Catechism class. This lesson is a weekly look at the Heidelberg Catechism to help us to learn Christian doctrine with a warm and a practical application. Every lesson has an accompanying study guide. The web link to find that guide is in the episode notes. Now, let's start the class and learn the lessons. In this lesson, we're going to look at Lord's Day 1, question 1 in the Heidelberg Catechism. The question is, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer we must give is that I am not my own but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Saviour, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. I am not my own. And that's what we're going to call this lesson. I am not my own. I'm Bob McAvoy, and this is the Semper Reformata Podcast. you comfort. A family had asked me to recite a silly, pointless, untruthful poem at a funeral, and I had declined. Needless to say, the funeral director wasn't too happy, for in that business the family's wishes are thought to be paramount. She said to me, sure if it brings them comfort, what harm is there in it? But in Isaiah, the Bible talks about people who have made a covenant with death and taken comfort from a refuge of lies. And I won't be party to it. I'm not going to give people false comfort and false hope, no matter how much they want it. Thankfully, those who are trusting in Christ as Saviour do not have this problem. There already is great comfort for the believer in this life and when life comes to an end. And there is the assurance of eternal life in Christ. That won't please the positive confession people and the health and prosperity people. It's way too negative. And here's why. Because you don't own yourself. You're not your own. Aren't we independent lives? Aren't we free thinkers? You can see the result of free thinking in Judges where every man did what was right in his own eyes. But why aren't we free to do what we want, behave as we want, say what we want, believe what we want? Well, as Christians, it's because we have been bought. We have been bought with a great price. We were slaves to sin and to the devil until our faithful Saviour, the Lord Jesus, bought us back. Let's see how the catechist 
wears all that up. He tells us that Jesus paid a great price for me. He has fully paid for all my sins. First Peter chapter 1 reminds us of this, where Peter talks about knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. It was through his death on the cross that we are redeemed. Not through our works, not through our religion, not through our decision. We are saved by his work on the cross. Now the implications of this are that Jesus did it, not me. It's a historical fact, a fact that is already accomplished, and there is nothing we can add to it. It is objective truth, not subjective experience. Jesus paid for all my sins. And look that it says all my sins. Our sins are fully paid for. The price was enough. Nothing more is owed. In Christ's death and the cross, all the requirements of the law of God have been met and have been fully satisfied. It is accomplished. There is sufficiency in the death of Christ for every sin committed by every sinner in every age. Think how capacious is that atoning work. How fulsome, how complete. In 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7. We read these words, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. In 1 John 2 and verse 2, we read he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So Jesus paid a great price for me and he fully satisfied God's justice for all my sins. He has paid for all of them and he has redeemed me, says the catechist, from all of the power of the devil. I consider that statement for a moment. The devil, our enemy, is real. His mission is to lead us in rebellion against God and to drag us down into the lake of fire with him and his demons. He is not only real, but he is powerful. Just think of the damage he has done, even within the visible church. Testimonies have been ruined. Churches have been destroyed through the work of the devil, through his relentless temptation of Christians with money and carnal pleasure and jealousy and power and false doctrine. And yet in Christ, our enemy is defeated and the believer is released from the grip of his power, all of his power, says the catechist. Again, thinking of First John chapter 3, this time in verse 8. It tells us, he who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Let's recap. Jesus had paid a great price for me. He has fully paid for all my sins. All of my sins are covered. He has redeemed me from all of the power of the devil. And now I am not my own, but I belong with body and soul in life and death to my faithful Saviour. 
his work has a truly comprehensive effect. We belong to him in body and soul, in life and death. That's great comfort. All through life we belong to Christ. And when death comes, we are still being held in his hands. We are still his. You know, the modern world takes great comfort in all of its possessions, in all of its achievements, in its accoutrements, in its stuff. Comfort is found in the world, in moving up the social ladder, in gaining more self-esteem, in getting ahead, in owning a bigger car or a better home, having a better education, so that we can rest in what is ours, in what we own, so that we can take pride in our possessions. But the Christian faith debunks all of that as being utterly worthless. Our comfort comes from the fact that we own nothing, not even our own selves. We belong to Jesus. Some time ago, doing door-to-door evangelism, I met a man who told me he didn't want to even listen to the gospel. In fact, he told me he would never become a Christian because he knew that he couldn't keep it. Do you know he was right? He couldn't keep it. And neither can I. And neither can you. And so the catechist here talks about how we are preserved in God. John chapter 6 and verse 39 says, This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Think for a moment of the great preserving power of God. The Catechist tells us here that it is very intimate. He preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a her can fall from my head. Not a single hair can fall from our heads, but God knows it. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 29, the words of Jesus are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. He has a personal knowledge of each one of us. It's very intimate and it's very inclusive. The Catechist tells us here that all things must work together for my salvation. It's not just the preservation of my personal being that he's talking about here, but the organisation of all the events of my life so that everything works together for my spiritual good and well-being. Now that's a hard consideration for us to understand sometimes. How can we see the hand of God in the tragedies of our lives? How can unemployment or sickness or bereavement be for our spiritual good? And what of those who are martyred for the faith? How can any good come out of such horror? And yet we have this amazing assurance in the book of Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God to those who are the called according to his purpose. So God preserves those who are his, and he keeps them safe until they arrive in heaven. 
Now that doesn't mean that they're going to be free from pain or sorrow or death, but it means that they are kept safe in his care, body and soul, until they find true peace and eternal bliss in his heavenly presence. So what have we learned so far? We've learned that we don't own ourselves, but rather that as Christians we belong to Christ. We've learned that we can't preserve ourselves, that we trust him to keep us from falling. And then our last little teaching point today is that as a believer, you won't place any confidence in yourself. There was a couple called Cliff and Jean who lived across the street from our church in Bangor when I was a boy. They were a great couple. They were Christians who loved the Lord and loved the scriptures and who owned a big black and white collie dog called Rover. They had no children and they loved to have lots of young people around after church on Sunday evenings and they had a real spiritual input into young lives. One day Cliff cornered me. He asked me a direct and personal question. How do you know you're a Christian? Whatever answer I gave him seemed to satisfy him. But I wonder if someone asked some modern Christians how they know that they are saved, what would the answer be? Would it be I heard a voice? Or I responded to an appeal? Or I made a decision? Or I felt something? Or I saw a vision. I'm sure the list would be endless. And most of the answers would fail to satisfy Cliff. Given what we have already learned from the Catechism today in this lesson, that we have a faithful Saviour in Jesus who has redeemed us and bought us for himself, who preserves our soul in life and death, you can see that we will not be basing our future or our hopes upon ourselves or our own abilities or supposed strengths, but wholly and completely upon Christ. We will trust him. Here's how and here's why. How we trust him is not in our own strength. It would be so, so contrary to our human nature. We would want to trust ourselves. So God grants to us his Holy Spirit to dwell within us. He regenerates us. So the Catechist says, Therefore by his Holy Spirit he also assures me of eternal life. It is the Holy Spirit who makes us heartily willing and ready from this very day forward to live for him. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. How we trust him, not in our own strength, but because we have been regenerated by the Holy Ghost indwelling us.
why we trust him. Because when we focus upon the objective work of Christ upon the cross, when we realize that he has paid such a tremendous price to redeem us, and knowing that he preserves us, we will come to an assurance of faith and a joyful acceptance of eternal life in him. The Catechist says, He makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13 In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So the basis of Christian assurance, then, is not resting on what I have done at all, but in what Christ did for me at Calvary. Resting on an historical reality rather than on a dubious spirituality. I know that I am saved and I know that I am going to heaven not because of me but because of Jesus. So as we recommence our exploration of the historic Christian faith and from the very first lesson we affirm that it's a Christocentric faith. It's all about Jesus. Let us then fix our eyes firmly upon him. Mm-hmm.